And open up your Bible to John chapter 14. If you can remember, pre-Christmas, we have been making our way through the Gospel of John. We're going to jump back in with chapter 14, verses 1 through 6 this morning. Remember, John has told us at the end of this letter what the purpose of the gospel is chapter 20 verse 30 and Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah the son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name so those are his goals for us as the spirit of God inspires these words off of the page and into our lives that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah we may believe that he is the son of God And that as we believe in him, we would experience that new life that comes through Christ. In chapter 12, Jesus has told his disciples that he is going to die. Now, that was not something that they were able really to accept at all because they had a preconceived idea of what a Messiah would be. The prophets had foretold that. And then there was lots of thinking around those prophecies and expectations and dying was not on the list. So when Jesus says that he's going to die, they, they hear it, but they, they're not understanding it. Then in chapter 13, he washes the feet of his disciples as they gather for the Passover meal. That was another thing that they just really could not understand. Uh, the Messiah was going to be a king in Jerusalem, and kings accumulate servants for themselves. They don't become a servant and wash people's feet. And so the end of chapter 12, beginning of chapter 13, they're all discombobulated. Jesus is not acting in the way that they think that he should be acting. And then even further than that, he predicts at that meal, after he washes their feet, that one of them is going to betray him. And then that Peter specifically is going to deny him three times. So they're all confused. And in chapter 14, verse 1, let's read it together. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going. So how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus says to them in verse 1, do not let your hearts be troubled. Now in chapters 12 and 13, Jesus is troubled himself. So this, it's not sin to be troubled. Chapter 12, verse 27, now my soul is troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Chapter 13, verse 21. After he said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. So Jesus wants to comfort the disciples. He's not correcting them. Don't let your hearts be troubled. He's not getting on to them because he himself in the last two chapters has been troubled. It's because he cares for them. He doesn't want to see their heart more burdened than it ought to be. So everything that he says after, don't let your hearts be troubled, is supposed to be comfort comfort to them and they are troubled for many reasons Uh, one because they love Jesus and they cared for him as a person but also they're troubled because they have really gone all in on Jesus being the prophesied savior 
Uh, remember what Peter says in Luke's gospel, chapter 18, when he says to Jesus, we have left all we had to follow you. And Jesus says to him, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age, in the age to come eternal life. I think what Peter is saying to them, to Jesus is like, hey, we bet on you and uh, we're right, right? And Jesus says, yeah, you're right. You're going to receive way more than you could possibly imagine. Um, so when Jesus predicts his death, and they don't have a framework for the Messiah being crucified and resurrected from the dead, it sort of feels like maybe they were wrong. And we know that this is what they're thinking at the end of Luke's gospel after Jesus has been resurrected, but before the disciples know for sure that he's been resurrected, two of them are walking along the road to Emmaus and Jesus appears to them. They don't know it's Jesus. He's keeping that from them. And he asks them, you know, hey, what's going on? You seem like you've, you've got a lot on your mind. And they kind of launch into the whole story about Jesus of Nazareth. And they say, we thought that he was somebody. But the way they leave it open-ended is like, but we were wrong. They don't say that, but that's kind of the way that they're thinking. We thought that he was the one, but he died. He was killed, so he clearly is not the one. And that's where it says that Jesus actually starts with the law and the prophets and shows them why the, the, the Christ had to be crucified because they just didn't have that in their mind. So the reason that they're troubled, yes, they care for Jesus as a person and he's just told them that he's gonna suffer and die, but it's also because maybe it means that they were wrong, that he's not the Messiah. Do not let your hearts be troubled, he says. You believe in God, believe also in me. We like to take our kids to theme parks, as all parents do. And uh, I like roller coasters. Amanda likes roller coasters. And so it's really important that our kids like roller coasters or one of us just has to sit out for the rest of their lives. Right? <laughs> and so when Jackson came along, uh, we you know, put him on a roller coaster and he was loving it. Uh, could not get enough of it. In fact, we put some, some things in his shoe to make him a little bit taller so he could ride the big boy <laughs> roller coasters. He loved it. But then when our daughters came along, neither one of them really liked it. And so we had to go into that parent speech, which is I know that you're looking at this roller coaster and it, from this point, it does look scary. That is a huge drop and there are all kinds of loops and the science isn't really making sense about why the thing is still stuck to the tracks at that angle. But you just got to trust us this is going to be a blast. You're going to be really glad that you rode this roller coaster when it's over. Right? And essentially, that is what Jesus is saying to the disciples. I've just told you that I'm going to die. I've just told you that your leader, Peter, is going to deny even knowing me three times. But if you will just believe in me, just trust me through the next 36 hours, we're going to get through it. He says, believe, you believe in God, believe also in me. Um, if you ask Americans right now, do you believe in God? 87% of us will respond with an affirmative yes. But when Jesus asked them, do you believe in God? It's, it's way more specific. It's not some cloudy, vague idea. Yeah, I think there maybe is somebody behind all of this. Yes, I believe that there is a, a God. When he says to the disciples, do you, you believe in God? Believe also in me. He's saying, do you believe in the God as, as revealed in what we call the Old Testament scriptures? The God who created the heavens and the earth. The God who took dust and formed it into Adam, breathed in it. Adam came to life, took a rib from Adam and, and, and Eve came. Do you believe in that God? Do you believe in the God who chose Abraham out of obscurity and made him the father 
of a great nation known as, as Israel? Do you, do you believe in the God who spoke to Moses through the burning bush? Do you believe in the God who rescued the Israelites out of the hands of their slaveholders through signs and wonders? Do you believe in the God who split the Red Sea? Do you believe in the God who provided breakfast every morning known as miracle manna for those Israelites while they were out in the wilderness? Do you believe in the God who had them march around Jericho and when they shouted at the right time, the walls came tumbling down? Do you believe in the God who spoke to the prophet Samuel in the middle of the night? Do you believe in God who was with David as he stood before the Philistine giant? Do you believe in God who filled up Solomon's temple with his glory? Do you believe in God who has always spoken through the law and the prophets? Do you believe in God? The disciples will say, yes, believe also in me. And for any of us today who are just essentially following Jesus because he seems like the best possible path to personal happiness and peace in the world. And, and I do think that those two things are true. But if you're only in it for those two things, Jesus lays a dividing line in here for us today. I mean, he is saying, in the way that you believe in God, you need to believe in me. And he's going to continue with that thought in just a little bit. And then he gives them more comfort in verse 2. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? The scripture refers to eternal life in a variety of ways. It also describes the various aspects or events that occur in eternal life. There's the resurrection from the dead. Jesus refers to it as paradise. There's the kingdom of heaven. We call it heaven. It's known as a heavenly country. In Hebrews, it's referenced as a city twice. There's the new heavens and the, the new earth. And here he's talking about his father's house. And in his father's house, there are many rooms, it says. Now, if you have grown up in church and you have ever owned a King James Bible, and maybe your church used the King James Bible when you were young, uh, you, you know that the King James translates this verse as, in my father's house are many mansions. And, uh, and I grew up hearing this old gospel song in my church um, that was, uh, just build my mansion next door to Jesus, which I think is like a, is a pretty awesome song. Uh, first, uh, I'm going to have a mansion, and then I would like it to be right next to Jesus. That's like when James and John come to Jesus and they say, we want you to promise us something before we even ask you what it is. And he says, what is it? We want to sit at your right hand and on your left hand. I mean, I think it's even more to be like, and I'd like a mansion (laughs) while I'm there. Um, But if you look down at your copy of the scripture, unless you're using the King James Version today, which is more than fine, it says, in my father's house are many rooms. Before the scripture was translated into English, it was translated into Latin, which is, was the, the language of the day at that time across the world. And the word uh, for dwelling place uh, in Latin looks like mansions. So when they translated the Bible from Latin to English, they just said mansions in this verse, verse, and then, and then so we have believed that. Also, it kind of fits with our Western uh, culture, our ideas that if you really work hard in this life, then there's, you know, just up and up and up, and like you can climb a ladder, and so it makes sense that we just kind of carry that on into eternal life. If we're really great, then we get a mansion when we get to 
get to heaven. And there are some good things about that idea. It's not all bad. It does help us to understand that eternal life is going to be so much better than what we're experiencing now. You know, and most of us are not living in mansions right now. So the idea that there's something better waiting on us is a really, is a really holy and good thought. Um, there are some negatives about it, though. Um, there's this old country song. I guess it's not that old by Kathy Matea. Matea? Uh, and uh, it's a story song about a guy who died, and you know, of course, it's country and western music, so Peter is waiting for him there. Jesus, no, not inside in this song. And uh, Peter has given him a tour of heaven, and on the first street they turn on, um, huge mansion. The further they walk down the street, the smaller the houses get. They get to the end of the street, it's this guy's house, and in the song, it's a two room shack. And the guy is like, hey, well, you know, what the heck? And Peter responds in the song, well, that's all the lumber that you sent. The idea was if, if you had done more good work on earth, those are the building supplies in which God can build your home. There's no lows in heaven, so you got to send lumber there. So totally not a it's bad theology in a thousand different ways. Uh, but that is kind of the thinking that is the natural byproduct of we all get mansions in heaven because we're all going to have preferences. You know, maybe you even thought about it. Maybe you're like, I'd like an Italian villa or I'd like a mid-century modern mansion. And then we're going to start ranking as we do, like which mansion is the best one? Which one gets, you know, the most property? Which one is in the really nice section of heaven? You know, which of us are going to have to be middle class? And, you know, we all, it's a natural comparison. And then, it's, then the next step is then, well, how do I determine, well, I got to be really good here. And that's not the gospel. The gospel is that we're all welcomed because of the grace of, of Christ. Um, and it misses the point that Jesus is trying to make here. Right? Because when somebody is really hurting, when you've just experienced a tremendous loss, right? would it be comforting for someone to say to you, well, just let me go to the store and buy you something? No, it wouldn't. Not deep loss. It's not comforting at all. The comfort here that Jesus is offering is not the size of dwelling place. The point Jesus is making is, I'm going away, and that is scary to you, but I'm actually not abandoning you. I'm working on your behalf. I'm thinking about you. And when you get to where I am, then we're going to be together. That's the comfort. So I think in a biblical worldview and understanding, it would not be comforting for Christ to say, when you get into the kingdom, just go to your house. The comfort is, when you get into the kingdom, come and be with me. And that's what he says. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. Probably the metaphor that Jesus is using that they get that maybe we don't get because we obviously live in a different culture is when a couple was engaged. So I think around Bayou City, we have about 50 couples that are waiting to get married right now. They're doing our, our, our merge premarital program. So if you're one of those couples, imagine that you've, you've agreed to be married. She accepted the ring, that whole deal. Everybody has set the date for the wedding. 
in between, during the engagement time, um, one of you starts building onto your parents' house, just an additional room. And then instead of getting your own place, you just move in with your mom and dad. No honeymoon, by the way. Just straight in to your parents' house. That's what they would do. And so there would be a building, a preparing of the place, and then when the celebration of the wedding came, then, then that would happen. And that's probably the picture that Jesus is, is using here, that he's going away, he's preparing, and there will be a day when we are reunited. And the hope is not that then we would just go to our space and he would go to his space, but that we're going to be with him. He's already called his disciples brothers and sisters. In Matthew chapter 12, it says, while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. And someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Forever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So Jesus is just really putting his money where his mouth is. He said, I've called you my brothers and sisters. And so if you're my brothers and sisters, then you're going to live in my father's house because he's all of our father now. And that was the comfort for them. It wasn't that they were going to get their own individual space and they're going to decorate it and they like Chip and Joanna, but somebody else likes this and I'm going to have it just the way that I want it. It's that they had a special place in the Father's house and it was prepared for them. When somebody prepares something for you, you you're, you're drawn to it like a magnet. Last week, I built a, a table for our back porch. It's not going to win any awards, but I'm proud of it. And, and I built it for a couple of reasons. One, we didn't have any furniture on our back porch. And, uh, and, and also, I wanted to saw stuff. But my primary reason is I wanted to do my morning routine out there on my back porch, which includes coffee and newspaper, and that's where I read the scripture. That's where I start my day, and I wanted to do it outside. And so I finished my table last week. Again, proud of it. Not going to post any pictures about it because I'm not that proud of it, but it's working for me. But I don't know if you've noticed this. Every day since last week, it's been like 40 degrees in the morning. And if I had bought that table at Ikea... I would be doing my morning routine inside my house. But I built that table. I prepared that table for my morning routine. And so every morning I'm out there with a Carhartt jacket on and a blanket wrapped around me. Because <laughs> when somebody has prepared for you, when you've prepared something, there's, a, there's something special in it. And Jesus says to them, I'm going to prepare a place for you. We've all had that experience where we were the unexpected guest. You ever let one of your friends manipulate you into going to a party or a gathering or a thing in which they were invited, but you're not really invited, but they said, oh, don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. Do you walk into that environment bold and confident, working the room, no, you come tentatively. You try to stay off the radar of everyone. What, what Jesus is saying here to the disciples, and because of Christ opening his kingdom to all of us, what he's saying to us today is when you get to the Father's house, 
You are not an unexpected guest. Not any one of you. Well, what that means practically is I, people who work at a church, are not more welcome than you are. You were an invited guest, and more than an invited guest, you were a prepared for son or daughter, brother or sister of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have every right to be there. The door has thrown, been thrown wide open for you. So if today you feel like everyone else belongs here except for you, remember that as Jesus is speaking these words, Peter is still sitting at the table. And Jesus has already said that Peter specifically is going to deny knowing him three times before the sun comes up the next day. And he's saying this to Peter. I am going to prepare a place for you, Peter. It's one thing to say to somebody after they've made a mistake, oh, don't worry about it. But Jesus is saying this to Peter before he's messed up. If I'm going... I'm going there to prepare a place for you. Verse 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. I will come back and take you to be with me. This continues that marriage picture. Once the addition was finished and the date had arrived, the groom would often walk to the bride's house if they lived in the same vicinity. And his bridal party, groom's party, whatever that is, uh, would go with him. And they would meet up with the bridal party. And then everybody, everybody would parade back to wherever the celebration was being held. And that could be the picture that Jesus is using here. I'm going away, but I'm coming back to get you, and then we are going together back to the Father's house. Now, what's interesting is that all the disciples died. Most of them died of non-natural causes because they were martyred. They were, they were crucified. John, who wrote this gospel, history tells us, probably died of natural causes after being persecuted for most of his adult life. But they all, they all died. And we don't like to talk about death, and like I totally get it. Um, but if you can have confidence in the intersection of where this life and the next life meets, if, if you can have real confidence, then I think it will make being a faithful disciple of Jesus today easier. And so I think it is important that sometimes we talk about that transition from this life to the life to come. And Jesus says here to people who are, who are going to do that transition through death, I'm coming back to get you. And so we don't really, in my opinion, need to make a, a dividing line between Jesus coming back to get us at his return back to earth when he brings the new heavens and the new earth with him or when we pass away. I believe there is a welcome home for us at both times. And, and sometimes you'll hear people when they're living in that very holy and sacred space between this life and the, the, the life to come because they've been sick and they're in the hospital or whatever it is, sometimes people will tell stories about actually seeing Christ. And we check every story according to the authority of the, li the, the living and active word of God. And every once in a while I hear a story from somebody who just has been so legitimate and it just makes you feel the wonder and mystery 
of it. Uh, one of my spiritual heroes is this guy named Dave Busby, and, and he was a great preacher. Nobody's ever heard of him, but in the 80s and 90s, you just travel around America to regular churches like ours, and, and I never got to meet him in person, but I had these, these VHS tapes, and uh, he was a, an amazing man, had a, a very hard life. He was born with polio, had cystic fibrosis, long list of ailments, and, and his life was very hard. He would have to have breathing treatments, an oxygen tank, and he would uh, get off his oxygen, walk up and preach for an hour, and then go back and have to be hooked up to the oxygen again. This is how he spent most of his adult life. And he had these humongous eyes, and whenever you would watch him preach, it was like he was peering into, you know, your soul. And so, you know, again, I'm watching through a TV screen, and I'm like, he, can, he knows every sin that I'm committing right now. I I mean, he was that kind of guy. And the way he talked about God is the way I wanted to talk about God. And the way that it felt like when he talked about Christ, like Jesus wasn't a historical figure. Jesus was at his table in his back porch. And I wanted that. And, and, and so he was one of my all-time favorite guys. Well, he died a pretty early death because of all the things that he was living with. And uh, after he died, they would tell the story of when he was in the hospital, he, he, never, he didn't get out of the hospital. That was where he died and his family knew it. And so it, kind of everybody's up there and visiting him and they're saying their goodbyes and, and the family would be with him all day. And then they would go back to the house to sleep and he would kind of be there by himself in the hospital. And he was kind of in and out of consciousness at this time. And then in the mornings, his family would come back and he wouldn't be in his hospital bed. He would be uh, on the ground next to the hospital bed with his, his head rested in the chair that sat next to the bed. And so, you know, he's in that sacred space where uh, who knows what happens and, you know, science and what our bodies do and all that. So they didn't make much of it the first time or maybe even the second time. But the third and fourth time they came to see him in one of the moments where he was lucid, they asked him, what, like, why do you keep getting out of your bed? And, and he said, because Jesus is sitting in that chair. And I just want to rest my head in his lap. God knows. God knows. I don't know. No doctor. No scientist. I do know that in Acts chapter 6, Stephen is getting ready to die. And it says he looks up and he sees the glory of God. And then he says, and I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Father. I don't know. It doesn't make me worried about my loved ones in Christ who have transitioned from this life to the life to come who didn't mention Jesus. I, I don't, I'm not worried about that because of what Psalm 116 verse 15 says. It says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his faithful servants. The point isn't what happens when we die and what do we see and what do we not see and what's science and what's spiritual. No, that, that's not the point. The point is that Christ comes for you. He, he come, he'll come for you physically when he returns back to earth. Or he'll come and transition you from this life or the life to come. And when he comes, he comes with a huge welcome. Not as an uninvited guest who snuck in, but as a beloved son or daughter, brother and sister, his brother and sister. And so if you've had somebody who's passed away that you have loved and they were in Christ, be comforted today that the son of the living God welcomed them home. Jesus does not delegate the welcome into his father's house to Peter. He will come and get you. 
and he will usher you into his father's house. You know why? Because he prepared a room for you. Not down the street. Not in the cul-de-sac. But in his father's house. Because here's the key, he says next, that you also may be where I am. That is heaven. C.S. Lewis says, heaven is the remote music that we were born remembering. That longing for something eternal, it is not a place. It is what Jesus says here, that you also may be where I am. This is what the Apostle Paul is saying in Philippians chapter 1. He's in prison. He doesn't know how that prison sentence is going to end up. There are no rights for him at the time. He, he could die. And he says to the Philippian church, you know, honestly, it's a coin flip for me. I really don't. I win either way. It's Philippians chapter 1, which we read earlier. It's, it's, I win either way. If I live, I get to keep ministering in Jesus' name. And that's good for you guys. But if I die, I depart and I get to be with Christ, and he says in Philippians chapter 1, which is far better. He doesn't say, I, I depart and I get to go to my mansion. I depart and I get to upgrade my lifestyle. I depart and be with Christ. The, the joy of heaven, the resurrection from the dead, new heaven, new earth, all of that, the joy is not the where, it's the who. that you also may be where I am. Verse four, you know the way to the place where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? I love Thomas. Thomas is always the Debbie Downer. He's always the call it like it is. Let's not pretend that's Thomas. You have those friends that's like, no, hey, let's not. you're happy today. Let me tell you about all the things that you shouldn't be happy about. He's that guy. And, and Thomas says out loud here, we don't have any idea what you're talking about. Uh, it's just refreshing. You can say that to Christ, by the way. You're reading the scripture and you don't know. You, I, don't, I don't know what this is about. We don't know the way, so how can... We don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is both practical and theological. And this is where we'll finish. I am the way. It's practical. I am the way through the next few days. I am the way through the Garden of Gethsemane and the prayer and the arrest and the betrayal. I am the way through the trial. I am the way through my death. Just trust me. It's theological. He is the way to God and to the Father's house. I am the truth. It's practical. As I said earlier, they're, they're going to be tempted to believe that they were wrong. That they, they misunderstood what Jesus was claiming or he couldn't deliver on what he said he could, that he wasn't the Messiah. I, I am the truth. It's theological. Jesus tells us the truth about God and who he is and what God expects of us and what God has done for us. 
And I am the life. It's practical. Uh, They're going to be afraid of death in the next few hours. That's why Peter denies knowing Jesus. Because he didn't want to be arrested and put on trial in the same way that Jesus was arrested and put on trial and maybe was going to be punished. So he just pretends he doesn't know Jesus. I am the life and it's theological. It's through Christ's death and resurrection that we are born again and we are given new life. We are new creations in Christ. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's a very dogmatic statement, isn't it? We live in a culture where the only dogmatism that is accepted is that there should no, not be dogmatism. But remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. There is a funneling effect to Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am the gate in another place for the sheep. And that gate is narrow. The way you get through it is by confessing Jesus is Lord. Not happiness. Happiness is not Lord. Not freedom and wealth, prosperity. Those are not Lord. Jesus is Lord. Your own righteousness doesn't fit through the gate. Isn't that refreshing? He is the gate. And it's narrow. But on the other side of that gate is the Father's house. In verse 8, Philip says to Jesus in response to all this, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Can you imagine saying that. It is a statement of faith, I guess. Philip really does believe that Jesus could just reveal to them the invisible God. Um, But Jesus doesn't, he doesn't oblige that uh, for Philip because uh, for many reasons, but Philip is wrong. That would not be enough for Philip or the rest of the disciples. And we know that from the scripture because in the scripture, they saw the effects of the invisible God more visibly than any of us could ever imagine. They saw the Red Sea part. They saw the walls of Jericho come down. They saw the plagues and the wonders in Egypt. They saw the glory and cloud of God in his tent as they lived among that tent. They saw God lead them with a pillar of fire. I mean, just imagine as you're leaving today, instead of like a crossing guard out on Britmore, it's just a pillar of fire going right, left, follow me, to lubies. Like, that's what they were getting. It's crazy. And you would think if you were like, yeah, that's my God. He's, you know, he's throwing his fire out because we don't know which direction to go. We just follow it. When the fire moves, we move. So you'd be like, whatever that God says, I'll do. But also in the Old Testament, we have a record that they are just a people who cannot get it together. How many of us today, I mean, I want you to think back through your history 
have made a deal with God at some point. God, I promise, if you will do this for me, then I will dot, 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 dot. I mean, think of all the things that, especially if you've grown up in church, think about all the things that you have committed to God. I have volunteered to be a missionary more times than I care to count. <laughs> Room filled of uh, potential missionaries in here, and God is like, hey, when's your end of the bargain coming due? You're going to go live with Sam, you know. And I, I would guess for most of us that even though God is not required to uphold his end of a bargain he never really made, I bet he has been more faithful on his end than our end. He has shown us himself. And yet for most of us, we are still a room filled with people who can't get it together. And that's where Jesus would just take us back to what he said earlier. Just trust me. Just trust me. Do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Let's pray.